you to maybe just pass this around for us normally i, I use yeah no danny is uh is at home watching over six six yeah. siblings so i am grateful for having a son that's old enough to bear the responsibility and i trust he's watching the live stream right now are you danny are you i hope he is we'll see we'll find out genesis chapter one Genesis chapter 1, as we begin this series on the family. We remember the words of Jesus. Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees with one of those questions. You know, when you're in, when you're in Bible college, uh, as a preacher boy, you're always asking each other these, you know, these questions. Well, the Pharisees weren't asking out of idle curiosity. They were asking because they were trying to trip him up. And one of the subjects they brought up was divorce, talking about the dissolution of a family. And they asked him if it was lawful for a man to put, his, put away his wife for any reason. All right. In other words, can a man simply decide I'm done with this and, and I'm tired of her cooking or I don't like her nagging or whatever it may be and so I'm just going to end this marriage? Because at the time, the culture was that the man was absolutely in control, that there was not the equality that we actually see in Scripture that they're supposed to be there. And so they come and ask him about this. Why? Because divorce has always been a thorny issue, not just in our day. But 
the response that Jesus gave is what, what draws our minds back here to Genesis. Jesus said that Moses allowed them to write a bill of divorcement because of the hardness of their hearts. But he said, from the beginning, it was not so. In fact, I almost titled this message in the beginning, except pastor titled his message in the beginning last week. And I don't want to seem as if I'm plagiarizing, although all of our ideas come from scripture, I trust. So we're in Genesis chapter one, because if we're going to lay the foundations of what a biblical family is, we begin at the beginning. We begin at Genesis chapter one, where we find God founding the first family. Now, we believe that the Bible is our only rule. Do we remember this? It's our only rule for faith and practice. All right. So anything that anyone comes out with, any books on marriage or family, any seminars that you can go to, any podcasts you can listen to, whatever it may be, the foundation must be scripture. Otherwise, we set it aside. So our thoughts regarding the family, regarding roles within the family, regarding things like biblical uh, femininity and masculinity and all of these things, they must have their roots in Scripture, right? There's a lot of psychology that goes into modern-day Christian marriage counseling and modern-day Christian thought about marriage, but the foundation must be Scripture. If we step away from that, we lose our firm foundation because forever, O Lord, thy word is is settled in heaven. That's what the scripture tells us. And so if it's firmly settled in heaven, if it has been and always shall be, then we understand that these truths are for our generation and not just for back in Jesus' day and not just back in Adam's day as well. So we're in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read in verses 26 through 28 here in Genesis chapter, chapter 1. And he says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them notice this now, right? Let us make man one man, but I'm going to let them plural have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God created he him male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that creepeth, or that moveth upon the earth. So, we begin by looking at the very first account of the creation of the family. Now we know, and we're going to get there here this morning, we're willing, that in chapter 2, some of these ideas are filled out. But chapter 1 gives us the beginning of the family. And we see, first of all, that the family, man and woman, were created in God's image. There are a lot of modern-day thoughts out there regarding um, gender that would point to objects in nature and say, you know, there are things in nature that, that have neither masculinity nor femininity. They're neither male nor female. There are animals in the animal kingdom that can transition from male to female or from female to male. And that is true. But mankind, humankind, is the only creation made in God's image. And so God created the animals and God created man. And while we see many similarities because we have a common creator, we cannot apply to man the things that may be applied to animals. 
All right, so the, the, the naturalist argument that things like gender transition is just, it, it happens in nature and so it's fine for humankind, that's not scriptural because man was created in God's image. There is a differentiation, a separation between animals and man. We, ne we dare not forget this because I've heard many arguments from people who have been raised and steeped in evolution that, you know, we're just simply the next best thing on the evolutionary chain, but we can look back to earlier evolutions and see that these things happen there, and so it's okay for it to happen here. That's not scripture. The scripture says that man is created in God's image, and note that he says that they, them, we are supposed to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air. And so this was not something given to Adam alone and that the woman was created simply to be, you know, a footstool or a doormat. Man and woman together working in unity, working in unison as a family are to be the ones that have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over all of that. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, to be created in God's image means we are designed to reflect his glory, right? God is spirit. And so we know that we cannot see God in the way we can see one another. But because I am created in his image as a special creation, it is my responsibility to reflect his glory to everyone else. When you see me, when you see my life, when you hear my words, you ought to catch glimpses of and hear echoes of the glory of God. I cannot fully, perfectly echo his glory. I wish I could. But I am called upon because I'm made in his image to reflect his attributes, his character, his love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, all of these to the best of my ability. We are to reflect the glory of God. And notice that this reflection is to be done, this reflecting is to be done in the family. So mankind in general, every human being is called upon to be showing his image, reflecting his glory. But right there, as soon as he says, we're going to make man in our image after our likeness, he says, let them have. So he's already in the mind of God. He's already joined man and woman together. And they together are to be the ones that are doing these things. So we are created to reflect his glory. We're also created to do his will. And we'll see in chapter two, God looks at all that he has made and says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates Adam and says, it's not good. Why? Because Adam was alone. And so the general path of creation is that man and woman are designed to work together. A family is designed to work together. And we'll, we'll get to more details about this in a moment, but... Working together with my wife, I am better equipped to do God's will than if I were alone. I was, you know, Tanya and I were talking about this morning. I was reflecting on how helpful she has been to me because my wife not only sees error in me, but she is willing to communicate that error in a way that gets the message across to me. Sometimes I just need a nudge. Sometimes I need a little bit more than a nudge. And that's why we have cast iron skillets and things like that in the house, right? But the reality is, if I, as the husband, were to say, I am the authority here, I'm the one created in God's image, you are to be in submission to me and not listen to what she's saying, I lose my ability 
to do God's will as well as I can when I'm listening. That doesn't mean that everything my wife says is right, just as everything I say is not right. But I am better equipped to do God's will when I am in open communication with my wife. When we listen to each other, when we heed each other's words, when we treat each other with respect, we are better able to do God's will. So my calling on this earth to do God's will is directly influenced by my relationship with my wife. And so it is with her. Her ability to do God's will more perfectly on this earth is directly influenced by her relationship with me. Interesting that all this is here in this passage. We're to reflect his glory, we're to do his will, and we're to mirror his own relationship within the Trinity. Now, we understand from Scripture that from eternity past to eternity future, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed in perfect, joyful union and communion. Jesus, when he's praying his high priestly prayer there in the garden before he goes to Gethsemane, when he's praying for the apostles, he prays and says he's looking forward to getting back, being back in the glory that he enjoyed with his father before the world was. From eternity past, there was glory, there was communion that he enjoyed, that was enjoyed within the Trinity. Now, how is that possible for God to be one and yet still enjoy communion? I can't understand that. I cannot fully communicate that, but we know it's true. Our marriage is to be a place that reflects the image and glory of God by the communion that we enjoy. Now, I've noticed something after having five kids. Kids tend to create a lot of chaos. Have we noticed that? And, you know, Pastor said the other week when we were talking about something, you know, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. You know, my children are not oxen, uh, but the crib is also not clean. Um, however, within the chaos that naturally occurs when children are being raised in a home, the relationship between husband and wife is designed to be not only a place of growth for husband and wife, but a place of security for the husband and wife and for the children. That there's communion there. That there's union there. And the children learn of God by watching mom and dad in communion. That's part of acting, reflecting God's glory. We are created in his image. Notice also here, verse 27. He says that male and female... Uh, God, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So within the boundaries of humankind, there is only male and female. And I'm emphasizing this again because I know that we live in a culture that says that that's no longer true. The number of genders went from two to four to I don't know how many now you know, created out of thin air, these things are. God said there's only two. Now, we understand that because of sin, we all have propensities towards sinfulness, certain sins, all right? There are people who it takes a great work of God and a great work of grace to suppress their explosive temper. And you look at people born in the same household, first child, second child, third child, fourth, same parents, same church, same school, same everything, 
and you'll have one child that anger, at least outward explosive anger, is not really a, that big a deal. But for them, lying is a major problem. For whatever reason, you just can't get them to tell the truth. But for another one, anger just, not, you know, if you all ever saw Lydia at home, it's pretty clear that Lydia is going to be dealing with anger in her life because she has literally frightened my 14-year-old son as a three-year-old girl. That just That's how angry she gets. She is willing to take on anything and anyone, and if you let her go, she will chew her way through a brick wall to get to you if she's mad. Now, of course, at three years old, she can still be restrained fairly easily, and we are working on training that out of her. But it's pretty clear that Lydia was born with a certain propensity that maybe not all of us have. Is it possible then that even though God has only created male and female, that there are some that will struggle with attraction to the same gender? It does not make it right. I am training my children that you may know you have weaknesses. There are things that you will be drawn to that maybe other people wouldn't be drawn to. You must battle those things. It's not a, that's not a free pass to go ahead and pursue this sin because I'm made that way. All right? It's possible that there are people, and I'm telling you, it's not only possible, it happens. There are people who are attracted to members of the same gender. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that, oh, I was born and I look like I'm in a male body, but I'm actually one. That's not the truth. It means we all have sin battles. We all have struggles that we must guard against. We all have things we must fight against. And for us to give in to the base side of our nature, for us to give in to sin is not right. Whether it's regards to anger or lust or homosexuality or whatever else it may be, it's wrong. God created male and female. And as we said before, examples in nature do not apply to mankind because God did not create the ox and say, I'm creating this ox in my image. God did not create the frogs and say, I'm creating these in my image. It's not that God's glory is not reflected in all of his creation. It is. But mankind is created especially to reflect his glory. So again, we cannot take natural examples in the animal kingdom and say these apply to mankind. They don't. Because man has a moral calling that animals do not. And we are created. Verse 28. God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. God created the family to create children. Now, I understand first and foremost, first of all, that there are families where it's not possible that a husband and a wife, you know, a man and a woman, they meet each other, they get married, you know, they're, they're following scripture, they're following the Lord's leading, they get married and they discover at some point in their marriage that they cannot have children. There are plenty of examples of years and years of prayer where God finally gives children, look at Abraham and Sarah, All right? So, you know, that's, that's not to say that a marriage that's not having children is necessarily going against the will of God. That's not the point here. But... Marriages should not be formed between two people who have no desire to have children. Or if there's one party who says, I'm happy to marry you and enjoy all the benefits of marriage, but I'm never having kids, that goes against this word. 
one of the purposes of marriage is to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I understand this is going to be even more controversial, possibly, but I look at the word and the word of God is there for a reason and God chose the words for a reason. Am I multiplying myself if I have two kids? No, I have replaced my wife and myself. Boom, we're back down to net zero, right? When I die and my wife dies, my two children have replaced us. I have not multiplied. I only multiply when I'm having more than two. Now, I understand culturally this is shocking news. And again, I'm not saying that a family that only has two children and stops there is necessarily going against God's will. All right, this is not a club to beat other people over the head with. This is for us to take for ourselves, right? This is for us to teach our children. This is what marriage is supposed to be. And the bearing of children and the multiplying of oneself is part of God's call for marriage. That's part of the deal. When I was courting my wife, dating my wife, you know, we only dated for seven weeks and then we were engaged. So a lot of my courting and dating happened after we were engaged. But after we were engaged, one of the things I had to overcome was an unbiblical view of children. Children are a hassle. I thought so back then. I had no idea what that, how big that word hassle is. It's ginormous, right? Children are a massive pain. And, you know, there are times when you just say, could I hit pause and just step back and, you know, just be me and my wife for another year and then come back to the child rearing scene? You can't do that. Back then, I thought, that may be one or two, and then that should be fine. And my wife confronted me with this and a few other passages and says, why don't you see what the Bible says rather than what you've been taught, what you've been raised in? And so, you know, I was a Bible student. I, of course I knew my Bible better than she did. So I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to study this. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to see what you have to say about children. It didn't take long before God said, you know, you're wrong. That wasn't the first time in my relationship with my wife that I discovered I was wrong about something. It certainly wasn't the last. But I had to change my heart attitude and my mindset about children because I didn't believe, didn't want to follow this passage that said I'm to be fruitful and multiply. We're to bear children. Malachi chapter 2, God says, why did he make them one? Wherefore one? that he might seek a godly seed. So now it's not just enough for us to multiply ourselves. We have a bunch of kids, but we are to multiply ourselves and by God's grace to plant the seeds of godliness in them. Right? I cannot save my children. I cannot force a mindset on my children. The day is coming where each of my children is going to leave the house. They're going to be out on their own. And the question will be, will the seeds that my wife and I have planted of godliness, of holiness, of the scripture, of, of a biblical mindset, of a love for Christ, will those seeds sprout and flourish or will they fail? Ultimately, the decisions are in my children's hands. But I should be planting the seeds. And does not the scripture say that if you raise up a child in the way he should go or train up a child in the way he should go when he is old, he will not depart from it. So I should expect by faith that if I am planting the seeds of godliness in a real 
vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ in my children, I would expect to see fruit from that result, fruit from my labors. I'm not just to multiply myself physically. I've, I have been a part of the creation of more human beings, but I am to be involved in the salvation of more souls through my children. We're to be fruitful and multiply. That is God's will for the family. As we said, not every family bear children, but all families must be founded with children in mind. Right? Some families can't physically bear children, but God calls them to adoption or to fostering. Right? That's a godly calling. Some families discover they cannot have children and find that they have no call to foster or to adopt. That's also fine. But we dare not enter marriage in direct disobedience to what God's word has said. That we're to found our marriages with the intention of, among other things, bearing children, being fruitful and multiplying. And we are created to subdue the earth. Why is this here? He says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Why is this here? Because this is right here in relationship to the family, right? He's created male and female. He's joined them together. He's given them a command to be fruitful and multiply. And then he gives them the command to subdue the earth. How can I subdue the earth? If it's just Adam and Eve, how do they subdue the earth? They can't. There's only two of them, even perfect. They can't do it. But when Adam and Eve bear children and pass their faith down to their children, and not just their faith, they pass down their skills. They pass down their beliefs. They pass down their knowledge. So right here, contained in this passage, is a commandment from God for parents to educate their children, right? My children learn to subdue the earth as I teach them, as my wife teaches them. My son does not quite understand yet how mathematics will help him subdue the earth, but it will. You know, I mean, pastor talks about telling God, I'll do anything but preach. I think that if I were to confront Danny right now and say, is there anything you're, you're telling God I won't do? I'll do anything but be a math teacher. It's probably going to be at the top of this. Uh, so watch out. When Danny starts teaching math, you'll see that, you know, that, that my words are prophetic here. The point is, we're training our children with knowledge, with skills. Teach your children to do something with their hands. All right? I love watching my daughters in the kitchen. I was making pancakes this morning, all right? Making pancakes is not the most difficult culinary task out there, but we made pancakes together. And, you know, there's a part of me that's a little OCD that says, you know, you're going to spill the batter, you're going to mess up the eggs, you're going to crack the shell, it's going to end up in the end, we got to dig it out, you know. But I also realize, and I was thinking about this passage this morning as we were all making pancakes together, that when I'm having to elbow my daughters out of the way, because there's a hot skillet here, and I don't want anyone getting burned, but as they watch me, I'm teaching them something they can take with them. Making pancakes isn't hard, but you have to know how to do it without setting the pan on fire, without setting off the smoke alarm. We're training. We're teaching. That's part of what we do. My children will go out and do a better job of subduing the earth than I could by myself. So I teach them. I train them. I educate them. That is part of our responsibility as parents, training and education. Now, that's the first count of, cre of the creation of the family. Now we're going to move to Genesis chapter 2. 
beginning in verse 7, where the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then he goes on for a moment to, des to describe the Garden of Eden, chapter in, in verse 8 and going down through verse 14. He plants a garden, he puts man in there, and then it describes the beauty of this creation that man was placed in. It talks about the rivers that flow out from it. But God takes the man in verse 15, puts him in the garden to dress it and to keep it. So before the fall, man was given work. Work is not a result of the fall. The difficulty we find in work is a result of it. But work is pre-fall. Man was placed in the garden to dress it. So the first man was a gardener. Maybe not a flower farmer, but he was, he was, a, he was a gardener. He was a farmer. We were created to work. However, we were not created to work alone because he puts man in the garden. He commands him saying of every tree of the garden, thou shalt mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. And then he says right after that, it's not good for man to be alone. Look in verse 18 now. It's not good for man, for that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. I will make him a helper, a completer that is just right for him. That's why Eve was created, because man is not at his best alone. Now, hold on just a second. I will say this first. Not everyone is called to marry. The general course of life as we follow it as believers is that most of us will grow, we will get married, and we will serve God as husband and wife, raising children. That is the general call. However, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 that there are some eunuchs, as a, in other words, people who will never bear children, there are some that were born that way from the womb. Some genetic abnormality, some genetic predisposition, whatever you may call it, that they're just either incapable or simply unaffected. They don't need a family. They don't need the companionship. They're not built that way. There are some people who are born that way. That's okay. All right, again, we're not talking about, oh, well, because you don't have strong manly desires, well, that means you're actually, you, you're, you're a woman born in a man's, that's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is that there are some that are born, they don't need a family. That's okay. We understand that God's calling may be different for some. So again, I'm not saying that someone who is single is therefore, you know, if you're single and above the age of 18, you're obviously in contradiction of God's will. Right? I, I've been in Christian cultures that were just this side of it. Like, if you weren't already connected with another godly high school student, if there's such a thing, right? if you weren't already connected by the time you were out of high school, you went to Bible college because you've only got four years left. If you're not married by the time, or at least connected with someone by the time you get out of college, something's wrong. All right? We never would have verbalized that, but, you know, there was just sort of that leaning that way. Like, by the time you get out of college, boy, you better be connected with somebody. That's not biblical, is what we're saying. Because there are some people that are simply not called to it, not called from the mother's womb. He also said there are some that were made eunuchs by men. All right? Think about Daniel. Daniel, at the tender age of probably about 16, was rendered incapable of having children. Done. It was not his choice. 
He didn't decide, I just don't want to have kids. All right, something happened that forced him. That was the providence of God. Daniel could not bear children, but how many of us have benefited from Daniel? So it's not that people who don't have families can't be fruitful, but it's possible for things to happen that render people incapable of having children. That's also okay. Then there's a third kind. He says there are some that were made eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. You remember, and maybe you don't, way back a while ago when we were doing biographies in Sunday school, we're going back a few years, one of the men that was covered was John Hyde, praying Hyde. And somebody asked him there in India as he was serving, they said, why don't you find a woman to marry? Because there were plenty of godly Christian women that looked up to him, that knew he was a godly man and would have been interested in marrying him. And he said, when I was young, I was so in love with Christ, I was looking for something to give him, some gift that I could give him that would be of, of great value. And the gift he gave him is he said, Lord, I will dedicate my entire life solely to you and I will not marry so as to maintain my focus on my Savior. Not everyone is called to do that. But for the kingdom of heaven's sake, John Hyde chose to remain single. So you can be that way from your mother's womb. Things can happen that create that cause that outside of your control. And it's possible that God may call you, even though you may have a predisposition to, you know, you're the kind of person who would like to get married, would like to have a family. But for Christ's sake, we set that aside and say, Lord, this is a gift to you. So in other words, neither singlehood nor marriagehood is greater or lesser. The point is we all must follow Christ for ourselves. All of us must have a relationship with Christ and have communion with the Holy Spirit enough that we know this is the path that God is leading me down. So that is not to say that singleness is a blight or marriage is a blight. Both of them are men and women, biblically, following the call of God on their lives. So I know the Christian culture may guide us a little differently here in these days, but it's not right. What we are to understand is that if we're to start a family, it must be started with these things in mind. So the only creation that was created from one another is husband and wife, man and woman. God created all the animals and he created them and he brings them by Adam and Adam is already seeing a male and a female, and a male and a female, and a male and a female, and a male and a female. So God created the male ox and the female ox. God created the male chicken and the female chicken. By the way, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I know the answer. The chicken came first. Problem solved. Because God didn't create the egg, he created the chicken. I know y'all were wondering about that. But... Adam is seeing all these and he's naming them because if you look in Genesis chapter two, it seems that God created Adam and then created the animals and brings him by. And as he sees, he's seeing two by two, two by two, two by two, two by two. And he's naming all these things. And God says, it's not good that man be alone. He created man alone so that he could see that unlike all the rest of creation, he didn't have a companion. It was an important lesson for him. We are the only creation that was made from each other. Eve was made from Adam's rib. But it's only through Eve that the rest of mankind comes. So that's why Paul says in the New Testament, 
the woman is not without the man. In other words, the woman can't be without the man, but also the man can't be without the woman. You notice the difference. God created mankind, husband and wife, man and woman, special, different from the animals. So that means that we are mutually dependent on one another. It is expected that a husband and wife should be leaning on each other. We're to depend on one another. We're to support one another. There is no, there is no one on this planet more capable of acting as a comforter, as a paraclete, as one who comes alongside than my spouse. No one is better equipped than a woman who's known me for 17 years in a way nobody else gets to know. So we lean on each other. We support each other. We encourage each other. We strengthen each other. We make up for each other's weaknesses. I was telling Tanya this morning, you know, we were talking about going to church and I was asking her, you know, are you able to get ready in time for us to both come to church at the same time? And she was not because, you know, my makeup doesn't take as long as hers does. I don't wear makeup, just for those who maybe don't know, right? I slap on a little deodorant and spray a shot of polo, and I'm good to go. But hers takes longer than that. And she said, you know, but at the end of church, because we have sick kids at home, I'm going to need to go right out the door and head home because I've got sick kids at home. I wasn't even thinking about that. That doesn't mean I hate my kids. It means our minds work differently. Isn't it good to have someone who offsets my mindset? Because there are times when my mindset reminds her of something she's not thinking about. And there are times that she thinks of something that I don't. That's how marriage is designed to work. Because like it or not, I've got a lot of weaknesses. But by my wife and by the help and support she is for me, she supports me in my weaknesses. We're designed to help each other. Now, look at verse 24. Because of all these things, because God takes the rib and he makes the woman and he brings her to brings him, brings her to Adam. And Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Then it says in verse 24, therefore, because of these things, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and the wife, and were not ashamed. Marriage begins, we said this back when we were, we were talking about Baptist distinctives and the autonomy of the local church. Marriage begins with a separation. Until I was married, I was under the authority of my parents. My parents had the right to dictate things to me because I was biblically, physically under their authority. When I got married, I left my parents. I left their authority. They no longer have a right to dictate anything to my family. They can counsel. They can suggest. They can exhort. They can comfort. They can encourage. They can do all of those things. What they don't have the right to do is to command. The word leave literally means to forsake. I have turned my back on my parents, not on honoring them, not, in, as, not on treating them the way they ought to be treated biblically, but I've turned my back on my parents and I am now the new head of a new creation, a new family. Now, I know down through the ages, throughout Christian history, and even nowadays, there are families that tend to just sort of elongate. And you have, you know, uh, in Hispanic culture, you'll have the matriarch and she rules everything. Ask me how I know. 
there are in many Christian circles this idea that the, the man is the head of the household and that he has sons and daughters under him that, that not only look up to him for advice and counsel, but actually he controls things or some things under the guise of spiritual leadership. I am the top spiritual leader in my home. Above me is God. I don't say that proudly. I don't say that because this position of power was gained because of great godliness on my part. I'm simply saying that the scripture says, when I chose to be married, I chose to leave my parents. I stepped out from under their authority and created a new family. Now think about this. There are parallels here to the other two institutions that God has created. Do we believe in one world government? No, we don't, right? We have a problem with the idea that there is one government that dictates to all the other governments. We believe that nations ought to have the right to self-determination, don't we? We believe in the autonomy of human government. We believe in the autonomy of the local church, don't we? We believe that there's no organization that ought to have the right to dictate to a local church, you must do this, you mustn't do that, or we'll take your building from you, or we'll kick you out of the organization, whatever it may be, because it's wrong. We also believe in the autonomy of the family. When a husband and wife are married, they create a new family unit that is entirely separate. And that separation must be pursued. When I came out of out from under my parents' authority, when my wife came out from under her parents' authority and we were joined together, we still carried trappings of the families that we left behind. That's natural. There were things that were helpful that I brought to our marriage. There were things that were helpful that she brought. But as we began to live together, we discovered there were things, ties, that we still needed to cut because it wasn't right. In some cases, simply because it wasn't right for our family. Traditions that did not carry over or that we tried to carry over and it just didn't work because we're not the same as our parents. There were also things, mindsets from both sides of our family that we had to sever because it wasn't right. So marriage is to be a place where we independently begin to consider all the things that we were raised in, not for the purpose of overturning the faith and throwing it away, but because I am responsible for the spiritual attitude and atmosphere in my home. So I dare not just say, well, that's the way dad did it, or that's the way mom did it. I have to know what God's calling for us is. So marriage begins when a man and a woman leave their parents. The man leaves his parents' protective authority and begins a new autonomous family. A woman leaves her parents' protective authority and places herself voluntarily under her husband's authority. This does not make her a doormat. This means that she understands that at the end of the day, if push comes to shove and neither can make a decision, she is required biblically to say, you are the head of the house and the choice is ultimately yours. I have made decisions like that on a very small handful of occasions before, and I have regretted most of the times when I have overruled, but not all. At the end of the day, the decision is mine. But that authority is to be used very, very carefully. This does not subordinate, by the way, women in general to men in general. This does not mean that women are somehow second class, men are up here, women are down here, or down here, or down here. We are simply saying that within the bounds of the family, the husband has the final say if they cannot come to an agreement. That's all we're saying. That is not a statement about the worth of women against men. 
And that is certainly not a way of saying that all women ought to be in somehow subordinate to or more respectful to men. My wife is my subordinate and nobody else's. And talk to her a little while and see if that's the case. Because if you know my wife, you know that it takes a great effort of grace on her part to subordinate herself to me. And that's the way it should be, folks. In no way does this subordinate women to men. And no other family has the right to dictate to the new family. These are the beginnings. This is the foundation of the family where God creates it. And the, the, the circumstances surrounding the creation of the family are what begin our mindset and teach us, train us, point in the right direction of what a family ought to be. This is the beginning of this series on the family, and it's certainly not the end, but we must lay the foundation at creation. What did God intend when everything was still perfect? The fall has not happened yet. We're not dealing with the, the results of the curse. All we're talking about is Adam and Eve perfect in the garden. What does that look like? But we know that before Adam and Eve, there were no parents. And yet it says, for this cause, therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother. So all of this is intended by design at creation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had. We pray, Lord, that as we begin this series, as we continue this series, that you would be honored and glorified as we, in our families, change our families to be more in the image of what they ought to be that they might glorify you, that our children might see love, genuine, heartfelt, intense, and passionate love between husband and wife and their Savior, that we might be fruitful and multiply ourselves in this world, and that we might subdue it for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks. The Lord bless you.